So this talk is titled The Beauty of Change and the Change of Beauty. And it's a curious title, I know, so I want to tell you what it's about. The beauty of change is about the possibility of transformation. And the change of beauty has to do with facing the realities of life, the inevitabilities of being human that we all have to face in order to live our lives. And a big question about the change of beauty is how do we respond to that? How do we live our lives when we're ailing or when uh, we're aging, for example? So this was inspired, this talk was inspired by being in New England during the month of March, this last month of March. And I was at the Forest Refuge with, um, with some friends, two friends here. And this Forest Refuge is a hermitage for silent retreat. It's in Massachusetts. And I arrived at the beginning of the last big snowfall of winter. It was a gentle snowfall, but nevertheless, it's a magical time for me because I don't get to see snow so often. I woke up to a magical wonderland of whiteness all around me. Nothing was, there were no footprints yet in the snow. Not any of the animals or human beings had come around yet. And of course, the frozen earth was stark and naked uh, during that time of the year. The branches are all bare, so the sunlight can get through. Gradually during that month, the warmth of more sun melted the snow. And it also melted in my heart the opening to seeing the possibility of how things transform, not just around me, but in my own heart as well. The small buds were just bumps on the branches when I looked out my window of where they had given me a cottage to stay in. I was on the, the living room is on the second floor and it looked out upon these uh, particular trees and I don't know what trees they are but they have buds on them. They might be cherry trees or apple trees and I saw the buds becoming bigger and bigger and then at some point during the end of the month they burst open and I saw little buds of white flowers starting to come out loosening its um, kind of protectiveness on the branches opening into flowers. Also right outside my door uh, as I walked a little further past the, the entranceway there were these bulbs that I didn't know were planted in the ground, of course. Um, and I could see their leaves, their strong leaves, pushing up from the ground. And every day just watching the transformation of how the leaves <coughs> got, uh, were becoming more noticeable. And at the end of the month also, having had the leaves kind of expose themselves through the earth and the snow melting, also the buds and some of the flowers started to expose themselves. They made their journey to blossoming. They made their journey of transformation. When I arrived, I was struck by the barrenness of the landscape, the trees and the bushes 
had nothing on them. And yet deep inside, I knew with great faith that it would change, that uh, they would, the foliage would come, the blossoms, and I was just there in uh, giving a retreat at another place nearby, a sister place of the forest refuge. And everything was in full blossom. So just realizing this possibility uh, of change and seeing the beauty that comes from it. Of course, it will continue in its cycle through the, se- through the seasons. But what I was struck with was just how this barrenness and this tightness turns into loosening, turns into foliage, turns into flowers and fruit. It brought to light that deep, unshakable faith of transformation that I know is always there within me. The wordless teachings from nature make its mark in the heart and in the mind without reading any books. If we're just open to all of that. And no matter whether we're in Massachusetts or on Maui, we have these teachings all the time. We have the precious opportunity that we do here to see the changing nature all around us. If we can tune into that, if our minds are quiet enough so that we're not pulled and pushed with the busyness of life, with all the things we have to do. And I'm not speaking from being an expert at this, from just really knowing how to tune into nature all the time. I too have a lot of things on my plate, a lot of pushes and pulls, and it really helps to understand how to be in the present moment, to open to seeing the, just how the leaves change here, how the trees get all barren, uh, actually in the springtime in the buds of the beautiful Inia trees that grace our land. We have about 20 of these beautiful Aenea trees that give off a a blossom, a very subtly fragrant blossom at a certain time, just before summer. Just to notice the changing nature of whatever it is all around us. The changing nature of this body, of this mind, of this heart, right now, right here. Can we attune to that? I think nature calls out at us at me to remind us of this. This is the body of earth all around us. It asks, are we in tune with this body within us, this mind within us, this heart that is also always changing? In our practice, we talk about realizing the Dhamma or the Dharma. Dharma is Sanskrit. Dhamma is Pali, a more ancient language. And this means to realize the the lawful nature of this body, of this mind, the lawful unfolding of nature, outwardly also and mostly inwardly. If the mind and heart are quiet, open and clear enough, we connect with our sometimes uncanny faith in the possibility of realizing this nature in a very deep way of transformation and of a way in which we can take in this nature 
realize it, see what lessons and teachings it has to give us, and begin living in alignment with those teachings, with those lessons of the body, of the mind, of the heart. We begin to release the habit patterns through this mindful awareness, through this practice, the constrictions of the heart that make it hard to be with ourselves, that make it hard to be with others, not just hard for ourselves, but hard also for others to be with us, with the constrictions of the mind and the heart. With this practice, we begin to release the patterns of greed, of grasping, holding on not just to things, but more we hold on to opinions and ways that we think we should be or life should be. This is very painful. We're not living in alignment with the fact that things change when we hold on too tightly, when we can't let ourselves be or others be. Uh, One of my colleagues, Joseph Goldstein, says that he had a great teaching from one of his students when the student came to him and said, when you hold on too tightly, it's like having rope burn because life is always moving and we're trying to hold on to something that's always moving. We're not making room for the change. So we get burned by it. The patterns of aggression and aversion and ill will These are also habit patterns of the mind and the heart that um, affect our bodies and we see it in various ways of our bodies acting out. Of course, that's not the only reason why bodies go into illness or sickness, but it's one of the reasons the mind affects the body. Also, we release patterns of delusion Uh, This can be known more as, um, more directly as identification. When we identify with this grasping and greed, this aversion and aggression, uh, or we identify with anything that we have in life or any person, uh, this is delusion, holding on. It's also attachment, but it's a lot of delusion when we hold on, when we identify with... um, things that are happening to be me, mine, and who I am. Delusion is a belief in thoughts and ideas that have really no basis, but we can't see so clearly, so we don't know. This release is what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, releasing the ways of being, the patterns of being that bind us into ways of acting and speaking that are hurtful. If we didn't have this sometimes hidden faith in transformation, we wouldn't be taking this time and energy to do the practice, to see the value of being in uh, surroundings and being in uh, supportive conditions where we can be mindful, where we can learn how to quiet the mind and the heart and the body, where we can come to a place of such quiet that it sees clearly the nature of life. So in this practice we release the habits bit by bit that create suffering by simply being mindful of them. When we're not fueling or electrifying or strengthening them, but we're just bringing in neutral attention 
to our moment-to-moment experience. This neutral attention is very rare. It's not something that we're used to doing. When something happens in the body or bodies outside of ourselves, we react with attachment or aversion, depending on whether they are pleasant or unpleasant. When something happens in the mind, we're not so trained in bringing a neutral, mindful awareness to what's going on in the mind. What the mind usually does, the habit pattern, is to react. We have an unpleasant thought and we react with aversion. We have a pleasant thought and we react with attachment. But by being quiet, we learn this kind of process that happens and we become less and less reactive, thereby less and less attachment, aversion, delusion are happening in the mind. The mind is more quiet. The body is more quiet. So we don't fuel by acting them out, by speaking words that cause harm, or by solidifying a sense of self about them. Bit by bit, they're weakened, these patterns that cause us harmfulness, and others as well. And eventually they're uprooted through the practice. And just as the dawn follows the dark of night, we find that other more harmonious patterns of heart and mind begin to predominate. Very naturally, we see that mindful awareness becomes more effortless. It's just there during all of our waking hours. It doesn't matter whether we're sitting. Even when we're uh, moving about, we have a sense of being mindfully aware That doesn't mean that we're just paying attention to just the breath or just the walking. There's this large open awareness that we uh, train the mind to open to, to be aware of, so that we know what's happening around us. But without the mind reacting to it, there's just this neutrality of awareness that knows how to respond in the proper way. What also begins to predominate is compassion, being more gently open to the suffering of ourselves and the world and not um, pushing back if it's difficult or with cruelty. There's more natural equanimity, a balanced mind, an open mind and heart. There's more ability to appreciate the beauty and the joy that's in life, more joyful There's a quieter mind, and all of this allows us to tune into each passing present moment with more clarity and more appreciation. This results in valuable and life-changing new ways of understanding ourselves and life, who we are, how to live our lives in alignment with things that change, things that don't stay the same, things that aren't always pleasant, things that are pleasant, but they disappear, they go away. Somerset Mom said, the passing moment is all we can be sure of, really. It is only common sense to extract the utmost value from it. It said that it's in the present moment that one learns the most of life, 
when we really realize what's going on here and now, we gain from that. One uh, meditator yogi friend of ours said that this dhamma, this dharma, this opening to how things are in ourselves, in the world, is just advanced common sense. It's not anything really so esoteric, so out of this world. It's just coming to know this moment so clearly that we learn things in a very deep way that transforms our life and then transforms the lives of others around us. So moment by moment and bit by bit and breath by breath, we learn to let go more easily. We see things come up very um, spontaneously, come up in the mind and the heart. And so we, we feel them coming before they even have taken hold. And we remember to be careful of what we say, what we do. We have a, a chance to think more clearly about how to act, what to say. So it begins uh, to be more easily... Um, our hearts begin to relinquish things more easily, not hold on to even places of difficulty within us. We begin to nourish what brings a deeper sense of peace, what begins to bring a deeper sense of harmony in ourselves. So letting go what is harmful and nourishing what is uh, harmonious, these are natural, uh, the natural effect of our practice. So the beauty of change is that we see that this is possible through our own experience. For many of us who have been on the path for some time, we look back maybe 10 years and see the great change in, in our lives. I've seen that with people around me who have been practicing intensely. And not just going to retreats, but just taking the practice and doing the practice at home in a very sincere way. We can have faith in our own transformation. We can have faith in our own possibility of awakening to life more and more. Perhaps this is so because we are willing to face the difficulties because of our willingness to open to aging and illness and death and the general changing nature of life through opening to the laws of cause and effect, we're more able to transform because we're not spending a lot of our energy in our habit patterns of resisting what is hard to open to, of clinging to what we don't want to change. For many of us who have been on the path, we begin to see how much energy it takes in our life to cling, to grasp, to have attachments. And when we begin to let go, so much more energy is released. It takes a lot of energy to push away, to uh, not want things that are unpleasant. A big part of our life, our health and well-being can be, can open to us through the lessening of clinging, through the lessening of 
pushing back through of resisting. So we do this practice in order to be able to uh, fully awaken to life, to not just live in our small world uh, of where we are, but to look deeply, to go beyond the, the habit patterns. There's an often told story of how Prince Siddhartha, who was not yet the Buddha, but uh, you might call him at this point the Buddha-to-be, how he began his journey to full awakening in the life before he became a Buddha. And this is the story of the four heavenly messengers and how they played a part in his awakening, in Siddhartha's transformation. So this is a part of the practice where we look at what's difficult to look at in life and um, we open to, to that. At the age of 29, the Buddha-to-be, Prince Siddhartha, wanted to leave the palace to explore the outside walls and what was beyond that. He was overly protected by his father and his mother at that time because he was told that if he opened to anything that was difficult to open to, illness, um, death, old age, that he would take the path of being uh, a Buddha. He would take the path of awakening to his full potential as a human being. Rather than taking the path of being a world monarch, and his father and mother, kind of like the rulers of that area of India, did not want him to be in that kind of hermit's life that would bring him to looking more deeply and then eventually to opening to full awakening. They wanted him to take the path of full awakening, uh, uh, sorry, of, of the world monarch. So they kept him away from anything that was unpleasant, anything that would open his mind to kind of exploring further what it would be to really see what it is, to really experience what it is, old age, sickness, and death, what comes up from that? He asked his charioteer, Chana, who was his first teacher, to take him beyond the walls of the city. And in a way, that's what we're doing when we meditate. And when we come to places like this, we allow ourselves a time to go beyond the habit patterns of the mind, the walls of the mind and the heart, the, the habit patterns of our lives, and begin to explore more deeply what's going on beyond all of that. So his charioteer Chana took him beyond the city walls, and he encountered in that uh, going beyond an old person, this old person was bent over, wrinkled, with very sagging skin, very thin skin. By the way, this is a very short version of the four heavenly messengers. The Buddha-to-be also encountered a sick person, suffering greatly with disease. And he had never seen this before either. He'd always seen bodies that were not old, but very young, very vibrant, the bodies that are mostly around us when we open magazines, you know, of the um, 
models and um, the youth in the in the movies and all of those people that we tend to see most of. I was noticing coming through the airports as I came home, everything that was on the cover was beautiful, smooth skin, not sagging, probably beings that were, you know, like not even 20. Not a real depiction of life, except when you look at Buddhist magazines. The depictions are skeletons and <laughs> older people. And I mean, this is the fullness of life. Nothing's wrong with youth and beauty and, you know, skin that isn't wrinkled. But if that's all that we're looking forward to and wanting to be, then it's a very limited part of life. So the Buddha had never seen this. He was always surrounded by fresh flowers and women and men who were vibrant in their life force. Old age and illness was not seen by him up to this point. He also was uh, open to seeing a corpse, a body lying lifeless on a, on a, a wooden pallet, people around wailing and crying. He had never seen these two things either, people wailing and crying, always laughter and just easefulness. The, his father and mother would take away anybody, it is said, that was displaying anything different from that. Never seen a corpse before, didn't know that this existed. Never even occurred to him in that particular lifetime that death was part of life. So he questioned his charioteer. He said, was everyone subject to these conditions, basically? The Buddha to be questioned bit by bit, you know, with each one, the aging person, the illness, and the corpse. And Chana answered always, yes, this comes to all. Even to you, this will come. And Siddhartha, the Buddha to be, said, even to this very body, and Chana said, yes, this will happen to you as well. He didn't hold that truth back from Siddhartha. So this was the Buddha-to-be's call to awakening, touching into a deep sense of inquiry that he had from previous lifetimes and also in that lifetime. From countless lifetimes, he touched into that search for something that was beyond what is in this lifetime, what can be known just through our habit patterns of this body and this mind. There's something beyond that and deeper than that. And his inquiry included these words, the prince asked Chana, and really was asking himself, why should I, who am also, who am subject to decay and death, also seek that which is subject to decay and death. What is it that is born? What is it that dies? I think when we're quiet, we have this kind of inquiry. We can allow ourselves this kind of, uh, these kinds of questions that we don't have time for in our daily life that kind of tires us out so... We don't have energy to go there a lot of times. 
So if we're open to it, these heavenly messengers are calling to us all the time. They're calling to us also to look, to open with honest eyes and hearts, to see what's happening all around us, to allow us to face and be touched by old age, by sickness, by death, and possibly what's beyond all of that. Are we prepared for all of that, really? Sometimes I hear myself saying, I'm really prepared for death. But then I meet people who say that I thought I was really prepared for death. People who are my colleagues on the path, people who offer the Dharma and say, I thought I was really prepared for death. But when I faced such and such an experience, I realized I wasn't really as prepared for death as I thought I was. Even if I had a near-death experience, I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was. So we can't be too comfortable with those thoughts, with those experiences. We can't let them be places where we let go of our day-to-day mindfulness, of we're not where we're not really strengthening that. The fourth heavenly messenger was a mendicant monk in saffron robes. I talked about the three heavenly messengers, but the fourth one was this mendicant monk in saffron robes, walking peacefully through a chaotic village outside the walls of the palace. And Siddhartha was told that these mendicants left behind the householder life to discover what was more beyond, what was deeper than all of that. It's something that we do when we go into retreat. We may not be a monk or a nun like Sister Viranyani is, but we can also do this as lay people when we do our times of retreating here or uh, day-longs or longer times that are offered The Buddha-to-be was profoundly moved by this sight and the possibility of this peacefulness, the possibility of having this kind of deep, inner, peaceful joy. This was the course, uh, the path that he took, uh, a different path in life than going towards being a world monarch. And this is what led him to the path of being a Buddha to be in this life of kind of completing his journey. The path that he took of finding this deep inner peace that brings a kind of happiness that's beyond the happiness that we could know continues to ripple out to all of us throughout these years and after 2,600 years of his own enlightenment. The Instructions and the guidance are, is still given today. There's a story um, of the Emperor Ashoka that had a similar experience that uh, Siddhartha and the Buddha-to-be had. And actually, um, I want to read this story to you because when I, re- when I heard this story and then I read this story afterwards, it really directed my life to something different. It began kind of a turning point in my life um, of choosing a path that I knew that I could have deep faith in transformation. 
So this is a story that's written in Sharon Salzberg's book of Love and Kindness. And this is where I, I also read this story later. Shortened version of this story I'll give you. Ashoka was an emperor in northern India about 250 years after the time of the Buddha. In the early years of his reign, this emperor was bloodthirsty and greedy for the expansion of his empire. He was also very unhappy. One day after a terrible battle he had launched in order to acquire more land and territory, he walked on the battlefield and saw the spectacle of corpses and of men and animals strewn about. He was aghast at the carnage that he had caused and he had continually caused before that. Just then, a Buddhist monk came walking across the battlefield. He did not say a word, but his being was radiant with peace and happiness. And seeing the monk, Ashoka thought, Why is it that I, having everything in the world, I feel so miserable? Whereas this monk has nothing in the world apart from his robes he wears and his bowl, yet he looks so serene and happy. Ashoka made a momentous decision. He pursued the monk and asked him, Are you happy? And if so, how did this come to be? And in response, the monk introduced the emperor to these teachings. And as a consequence of this chance encounter, it changed the entire nature of his reign. He devoted himself to the practice and study of the Dharma. He stopped waging wars. He no longer allowed people to go hungry. He transformed himself from a tyrant into one of history's most respected rulers. One person's serenity changed the course of history. And this is why the teachings of the Buddha were brought to us in our life today because his son and his daughter brought the teachings forth uh, to Sri Lanka from India, and then from Sri Lanka it spread back to India and to other places of the world, Tibet and Korea and Japan and Thailand and to places of Vietnam, to Europe and to um, the middle, some parts of the Middle East, Afghanistan, and also now here to the West. Some of the most valuable experiences that a lot of us have had is when we're surrounded by the inner quiet and the beauty of people around us in the Dharma. There's a retreat center that um, Sister Viranyani and I go to where, where both she and I were ordained. I was ordained as a temporary nun and Sister Viranyani is a nun for life, I, I think, I hope. Why? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Karma willing, she says. So, one of the places, that the last time we practiced there, we were there for a month at our monastery there. And our preceptor, Sayadaw Upandita, who's, there's a picture of him up here somewhere, he, um, he was um, ordaining little monks, samaneras, and some of them aren't so little. Some of them are, you know, up to 12 years old or 14. Or, so his, his goal in life now is to ordain as many monks as he can, those who are sincere about the monkhood. 
And what we would experience when we'd go up to the dining hall, there's this beautiful, huge dining hall where the monks would, would enter and we would enter together. And we would be in line, uh, waiting to go through the line to get our food. And um, the monks and the samaneras would take their seat. And we would all be, you know, very mindful. We have, we have to keep a kind of seclusion with our eyes and our ears. So we would have head down. And we would then be able to take our food after some offering of the food. And when we would look up, we would notice how quietly all the samaneras had come in and how quietly they had sat down. They were like feathers, and their minds at such young age, at least outwardly, were so, so quiet. When they left the hall, you wouldn't notice even their footsteps. And they were, there were probably 50 or 60 of them or more. I don't want to exaggerate. So um, just the quietness of being around the young ones was so beautiful. And then, of course, the older monks, they're like stones. They're so quiet, but so alert, so aware also. So it changes your life. It transforms your life when you're around such quietness. And it gives you some deep understanding of this is possible for myself, too, as well. I'm making this point because it's really important to tune in frequently to an inner quiet and in a place where you can tune in with others who are also quiet to take the time of seclusion and silence for yourselves. And it's in this way that we really pay attention to our deep aspirations. It can't be. Our deep aspirations just can't be acquiring and having these fleeting happinesses of life. Of course, that's important, and we, we're human, and that's what's in what we do and how we enjoy our families and our friends and being comfortable in life. But there has to be something more profoundly uh, valuable with our lives than that. And how are we to find it if we're not in a place of quiet? Sometimes we are uh, able to, but it helps to be in the quiet of nature and in the quiet of the, our natural inner life. What is it that's our highest potential that we can aspire to? So, I kind of expanded out on the fourth uh, heavenly messenger, that peaceful monk who, as part in part of his life, discovered what was valuable to him. And what about the other three heavenly messengers, old age, sickness, and death? We're surrounded by it every day. The Buddha offered a powerful contemplation that supports us to opening to these facts of life. And there are people who say this contemplation silently every day. I'll post it outside later. In order to really take notice of the everythingness of life and not just to seclude ourselves from um, you know, the difficulties of, the, of what we see and just kind of be drawn to what's pleasant and comfortable. But to open to these 
what the Buddha called the five subjects for contemplation. So I'd like to read these to you, but I'm only going to concentrate on the first three in this, the rest of this talk. So these are the five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, a lay person or ordained. Which five? The first is, I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm subject to illness. I've not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. And the last is, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that I will fall heir. So the first reflection on aging, I am subject to aging, I have not gone beyond aging. At this juncture of life for most of us, and for all of us really, we're seeing the elderly all around us. I'm one of them. You know, I got my senior citizen's card a long time ago. And at the age of 55, um, different places have different ages for being senior citizen. I was quite proud of it in a pizza parlor because I got a discount, you know, <laughs> the very first place. And also, it, it really occurred to me that, uh, again, for the umpteenth time, that, yeah, this body is aging. However, this mind, although it forgets more things, it has a different brightness, a different kind of way that it looks at life because of the practice. Aging is kind of poignant beauty to accept. Um, when I was younger, when I came here over 30 years ago, I would be in town and see a lot of people I knew. And a lot of the people in, in the country that I'm from, the Philippines, would say in, in Ilocano, they'd say, Oh, little sister. They'd call me Adin. Oh, Adin. Little sister, little sister. And I was always the little sister. And so that was wonderful. I always, in my um, culture, always felt protected by my, my countrymen and my elders. And, and then later on, I would hear, you know, we always say when I meet somebody of um, my own country, they'd say, how old are you? When were you born? It's like in the nunhood. They say, when were you? How old are you? And then they treat you differently if you're a little older. But here in, in, in the Philippines, in the Filipino culture, I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm this and this age, and I'm this age, and we figure out who's older. And then they say, if you're older, they say, oh, manam. So then I became manam, you know, the older sister. So now, um, now they say, oh, grandma. You know? <laughs> they say, oh, auntie. You know, people I look at and I say, surely I'm younger than her. But she's still calling me auntie, you know. So... It's, it's a kind of culture where that is beautiful to, to be around. I, I love the beauty of Hawaii in that way, in the different cultures. There's heavenly messengers all around, and we're one of them, you know. 
And also there are people around us, of course a lot of us have aging parents or they have passed away already, or aging friends. So it's really helpful to actually come close, take a look. My aging friend, um, the, the eldest person I know is one of my best girlfriends and she's 95 this year. She's in Halimakua. And it, she's a teaching, a walking teaching to me. Even when I go in there, she says, now she used to know me real well, and now she says, who are you? I think I know you. And I think, someday I may be like that. But, you know, her inner quality of joy and um, just her inner peacefulness is there, and just her friendliness. And she says, I know I know you. How long have I known you? And I tell her. She says, what's your name? And I tell her. And she says, well, have a seat. Can I offer you some water? And she's so just so friendly, you know, just all that beauty that she learned through her life is coming through. So I look at her hands and I say, oh, my hands will look like that sometime. I just hold them and really look at them. And then I look at my own hands and think, no amount of cream, no matter how expensive, it's, gonna, it's never going to go back to when I used to... I have a picture of my hands when I used to paint my nails, and they were so smooth, but now they're not that way anymore. There's a story of a beautiful woman. She was one of the most astonishingly beautiful women in the time of the Buddha. She was a chief courtesan of Vesali, one of the main um, trading cities of that time. A courtesan was a very highly respected role of that culture in that time. And there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of uh, business in that area because of her beauty and the beauty of the courtesans that she was kind of the, the mother hen of. And she abandoned her fame and her money to become a devout disciple of the Buddha. She turned away from that path at the right time. And um, she wrote a poem. And this poem is uh, one of the few poems that were preserved from the nuns of that time. It's called The Songs of the Sisters. And this is in the, um, a very thin volume called the Terigatha. And this is uh, her reflections about aging. Now, remember that these reflections are meant to jolt the listener into um, a kind of waking up to, uh, to aging, hopefully stimulating in that person the desire to renounce the world and strive for enlightenment, as what happened during that time of the Buddha. So... I'm reading you excerpts because it's quite long and you might want to look it up yourself sometime. So it's, it's said in a rhyming way, it's supposed to jolt the listener, but it's also quite humorous. Ambapali says, My hair was black and curly, the color of black bees. Now that I am old, it is like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. It was thick as a grove, and I parted it with comb and pin. Now, because of old age, it is thin, very thin. 
This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My eyebrows were crescents, painted well. Now they droop and are wrinkled as well. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My eyes flashed like jewels, long, black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My neck was beautiful, like a polished conch shell. Now, because of old age, it bends and bows. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My hands were beautiful, set off by rings, as gold as the sun. Now, because of old age, they are like radishes or onions. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. This is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, the place of pain, an old house with the plaster falling off. This is what I mean by, if you look at Buddhist magazines, this is what you find. Just opening to the truth of reality. Even the Buddha did not deny old age. He said at one point, I am worn out, old, like a dilapidated cart, held together with thin straps. But he still stayed on with his practice. His body was like that, but his mind was shining. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm subject to illness. I've not gone beyond illness. This is the next contemplation. The best time to practice is when we're ill. A lot of times when we are not feeling so well, we think, I can't practice now, I have to get better. But I remember a time when I was um, doing a, a multi-month uh, retreat center, a retreat at a center in Massachusetts, the center where I teach at. And I became very ill in the beginning of the sitting. And I went to one of my colleagues, Joseph, and I said, I don't think I can practice. I can't even sit up. I have a fever and the body's all aching. And all I feel is are these really heavy-duty aches and pains of the body. And he said, this is the very time for you to practice. The, the objects of meditation are very clear. What will it be like when you're dying? It could be like this. Or when just any time when you're sick, are you going to give up being mindful? This is the very time to practice. And so you can practice for aging, for more sickness in your life. You're not, this is not the only time. And so with that kind of admonition, I carried on with my practice. And indeed, just paying attention to the painfulness of the body, to the heat and the sensations. After a while, the body may be like that, but the mind doesn't have the kind of um, stress around it, around the body. The mind can be unstressful, even though the body's going through pain. This is possible. So then there's that great change. The change that changes us. It opens our hearts to the preciousness of life. It might transform how we relate to life. And this is death. 
I'm subject to death. I've not gone beyond death. One of the protective reflections that we have in the Dhamma is a reflection on death, actually. Why is it a protection? It's a protection because when we reflect on death often, we stop taking life for granted. When when we don't open to death, we get this underlying kind of hidden thought that we'll live forever or that you know, we'll live as long as we live and then we'll face whatever comes at that point. But we need to start facing it as soon as we can. It's a protection because it protects us from being arrogant, arrogant about what we think we know. When we open to death, we open to a lot of different uh, experiences in the body, in the mind, fear, um, kind of self-deception, pushing away, or a kind of strong grasping at life in a way that makes us suffer as well. It also is said that the protective reflection on death dispels the ignorance that everyone will remain the same. When we look at people around us who are gradually declining because of sickness or old age, oftentimes uh, I will reflect Sometime, too, this person will die. And all the more I feel closer to that person, not distant, but connecting more. When I was younger, I wasn't so open to this truth. I had a very rude awakening to this truth of death in that um, I had three children, and I was a single parent. I had come to Maui to raise my children here. I was very overprotective of the children uh, because I was young and it was only me. And um, I feared for them they would, you know, get hurt or in their body or in their minds. I worked for a cemetery as soon as I got to Maui. And I also practiced um, mindfulness. I met one of the first woman teachers I had ever had, Ayakema, Sister Ayakema. She was in the, the nunhood in the same tradition that uh, Sister Viranyani is in, in the Theravada tradition. She was one of the most powerful nuns, German nun in this tradition, Western nun. And she's still revered even today. She passed away already. I would talk to her about my fears about my children and... Um, my worry, my constant worry about the children and how we were going to fare through life, etc. And one day, I think she got tired of me telling her the stories. And she said to me, just like kind of like a Theravada sword, Zen sword, she said, Kamala, you know, you really have to be able to see your children, to reflect on your children dead, just straight out. Nothing, no softening around it, no preparation. She said something like, you work for a cemetery, you should be able to see them dead. You see a lot of people dying. I had, working in the cemetery, I saw a lot of people dying and dead. And um, I didn't like her for a long time. (laughs) She was like, I don't want to hear anything more from this nun. Um, 
But you know, that was a very, very powerful teaching to me. Because, uh, not that I, you know, was wanting to make it happen, but reflections would come like that, like it could happen like that, that this would, my children would die before me. And, you know, knock on wood, and uh, uh, nothing has happened yet, yet, and it may never, probably wouldn't, but who knows. One time, my daughter, the youngest daughter at that time, came home, and um, she was in kindergarten or first grade, and she was asked to draw a picture of what her parents did. Well, I was her only parent. So she came home with the picture. She said, Mommy, Mommy, look at this. I drew a picture, and I showed it to my teacher and all my classmates of what my mommy does. And she had a picture of me standing next to a casket with a dead person inside. And she had seen dead people, too, because she'd come with me to the mortuary, and I'd lift her up, and she'd see the people like this with the rosary or whatever. And she drew it like that, you know, with flowers all around. And, and I thought, well, dang, if my daughter, you know, she's only this small little kid, she can draw the pictures, why can't I open to the whole thing? So it made me stronger to be able to open to that. Death, opening to death. I've not gone beyond death. I heard a story about Carlos Castaneda. He was a writer. His teacher was Don Juan. He wrote many great books that I think uh, my uh, generation turned a lot of us on even more closely to the Dharma. Um, He was at this restaurant in Marin County. A small group of people sat in a circle around him, and one woman asked him the question, I want to lead a more spiritual life. What do you suggest? And they thought that Carlos Castaneda would say something like, well, go to the desert and meet my, uh, someone like my teacher, Don Juan, and take some mushrooms or whatever you know, he did during that time. And that they also would become a spiritual person like Carlos Castaneda. But he didn't say that. He said, when you wake up every morning, practice that everyone you see will also die. That was how to be a more spiritual person. To be able to see that, in a, not in a gruesome, morbid way, but in a way that helps you to make your connection with that person more precious. So every morning when you wake up, remember, everyone that you meet is going to die. It's very sobering. If you don't come away with anything else but that in this talk, it would really help to open to these facts of life, to the change of, you know, the youthfulness, and from health to um, it, to illness, from uh, just being alive to the time when we were on our deathbed, and we really want to be. I think all of us want to be as awake and as present as we can be. Are we practicing now for that? So when we become more open and accepting of the profundity of the fact of impermanence, which is all of this is about, we may be able to live our lives with less fear and more graciousness and more ability to be courageous and compassionate and 
connecting with ourselves and others in deeper ways. To know what's important to us, really, and go in that direction, beyond what the world says, beyond what all these magazines and the electronic news brings, and can we find what our deepest aspiration is in the quiet and silence of our own hearts. So I want to end by um, Sogyal Rinpoche's talk of impermanence and opening to death and how we can do it. He says there would be no chance at all of getting to know death if it happened only once. But fortunately, life is nothing but a continuing dance of birth and death a dance of change. Every time I hear the rush of a mountain stream or waves crashing on the shore, my own heartbeat, I hear the sound of impermanence. These changes, these small deaths, are our living links with death. They are death's pulses, death's heartbeat, prompting us to let go of all the things we cling to. So with that, Let's let the words dissolve and just sit for a moment.